This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Protecting the security of our users is what really keeps me up at night. And uh, it's something we invest a lot over the years. We work with law enforcement because we rely on their intelligence to help us assess threats. But it's a comprehensive effort, and and it's something we take seriously. And that, of course, was Google CEO Sundar Pichai testifying before U.S. lawmakers up on Capitol Hill earlier today, explaining many things, including the company's privacy approach, stressing the company's American roots. What you need to know, our Garrett DeVink is with us, technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Garrett, uh, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Breakdown. Uh, I think you just transported Garrett all the way across the country and into a different country. He's actually in Toronto. Oh, he's in Toronto. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. He was me. like, I wish I was in San Francisco. It's a cool office. <laughs> and wish, uh, Yeah, exactly. So break it down for us, Garrett, um, in terms of what we got from uh, the Google CEO. What was of significance and what the tone was between the back and forth between he and uh, lawmakers? There were a lot of questions from Republicans about conservative bias. That's something that we expected although, to be honest, I thought it would not be as intense as it was, given that we're already through the midterm elections. And, of course, there's no hard evidence that Google has biased its search algorithm against conservatives in any way. Many conservative politicians have done very well, um, you know, using Google and YouTube as a platform for getting their ideas out there. Yet the question was asked over and over again. Uh, the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, he, he handled it pretty well. I mean, he contradicted some of the exclamations from the politicians. He said, you know, the evidence that they were talking about wasn't um, peer-reviewed, it wasn't legit, and he did it all in a very calm way while sort of, you know, not getting drawn into a fight. Um, So on that issue, that's how he did. And, you know, this was not without drama, Garrett. I feel like today in Washington has been a reality show of the highest order between the White House and and Capitol Hill. He comes into the hearing room. He's shouted down by uh, far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, uh, Roger Stone, uh, Donald Trump associate is in the room uh, as well. But it does prove how front of mind this is, not just for lawmakers, but, but really across the political spectrum as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you could maybe see this hearing, you know, at least in the House, as kind of a, a last gasp of that, you know, conservative position that, that Google and other tech companies are, you know, trying to suppress them. It's something that they, you know, used to rile up their base. What I thought was interesting, though, is, you know, of course, the uh, House of Representatives has flipped to the Democrats, and starting in January, they will have a majority in the legislature and, of course, on this committee. And so you saw a few of the members, the Democratic members, sort of, you know, projecting ahead, saying, okay, well, we, we want you to come in again, or we want to keep talking to you in the new year when we're in control. And they were sort of saying, you know, it's silly to waste all this time talking about bias. But what we want to talk about is antitrust or privacy. And so I don't think that this is over for Google. Well, and that's what's interesting. And I am curious too, Garrett, what's uh, out there for the 
you know, bigger, broader industry when it comes to search and social. Uh, we've seen various CEOs um, go up before lawmakers over the last uh, year or two. And I'm just curious, is there momentum picking up for more regulatory oversight, uh, you know, based on what we're hearing between the back and forth between lawmakers? And I am curious how a different Congress come January changes things. Not sure about momentum picking up, but it's definitely not slowing down. I mean, I have to admit, when this all started more than a year ago, I thought it would mostly be a flash in the pan. It was, you know, maybe too technical, too complex for the political system to really stay focused on. But hearing after hearing, you know, the lawmakers, despite a few stupid questions, many of them are asking more pointed and sophisticated questions. And I think one thing that a lot of people in D.C. are talking about is a federal privacy bill in the United States that will, you know, arise or be kind of put forward in 20. 2019, potentially passed in 2019, that will put all the states on the same level playing field and maybe bring in some of those principles from Europe when it comes to privacy and data data protection. And so you saw some of the lawmakers already talking about that, and you can see that they are thinking about this as something that they are, they've educated themselves on. And I don't think, you know, as I said before, this is going away anytime soon. And Garrett, you know, put this in context for us among the other testimonies that we've heard across the course of the year, whether it's Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg or other people who have been forced to you know, sort of trot uh, up to Capitol Hill and defend uh, their companies as well. As Carol said at the outset of the show, you know, Google had been not showing up uh, to this point. So synthesize what you heard uh, today uh, from Pachai with some of what we heard from the other executives. Right. I mean, I think the, the core comparison here is, you know, how well did he do via Mark Zuckerberg last spring? And, you know, although Mark Zuckerberg sort of, you know, he, there was no major gotcha moments. He didn't, you know, he didn't have any moments that you could point to and say, wow, he, he really failed or really messed up in that point. A lot of the the, uh, the questions he answered with, well, I'll have to get back to you. I'll have to get back to you. And the Google CEO also used that term quite a lot, especially when you got to the more technical questions about, you know, third-party data storage and how Google's ad system works. These were things that he knows intimately, but he didn't really want to get too much into the details, and he kept saying, we'll get back to you, we'll get back to you. Hey, Gary, just got about 30 seconds left here. What wasn't answered in your view? that we need, to, we need to know more about? I mean, we all want to know more about China and exactly how far Google's plans were to build a potentially censored search engine for China and whether they are going to cancel that or whether they're still busily working on it behind the scenes. We didn't get an answer to that. Right. The magazine has done some great reporting on that. And, you know, it's like they never totally back off. Uh, so it is interesting to see if we'll get some more details on that maybe in the new year. Garrett DeVink, thank you, thank you. Bloomberg News tech reporter with an update on uh, the Google CEO testifying before for U.S. lawmakers up on Capitol Hill, of course, joining us from Toronto. It's taking me back, that song. I can't remember what. It is. Who like is that? Romancing is... the Stone or oh, something. Billy, Billy Ocean. Ocean. Yeah. Anyway, wow. uh, another rock star. He's here. Eric Schatzker, uh, editor-at-large. So many more things here at Bloomberg. And one of the things that Eric's been doing, Eric, you have been doing. I should not talk about you like you're not here. Uh, has been tracking. Sorry, I, I talk about myself in the third person. <laughs> Eric uh, likes to talk about Well, Jason wants to ask you about Mike Novogratz because he is truly – you and I love the big characters on Wall Street, I know – he there are a few the larger in life than Mike Novogratz, right? Right. Remind us, like, 
briefly his story because it's worth remembering. Swaggering macro trader who cut his teeth at Goldman Sachs, became one of the firm's youngest partners responsible for emerging markets, bounced out of Goldman unceremoniously about not quite 20 years ago, resurfaced as a principal at Fortress Investment, uh, as you know, sort of a multi-headed alternatives firm, the first to go public, in fact, under the ticker FIG. It's right. since been taken private by SoftBank and ran a macro fund there very successfully until he too flamed out in that role. Not for lack of trading acumen. Many people consider Mike Novogratz to be one of the greatest purebred traders that Wall Street has ever seen. His sin, if there is one, is that he gets distracted and can lose focus, and he would acknowledge that. He has, since leaving Fortress, brought a focus to Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, so much so that not only has he made a lot of money doing it, he decided to start a crypto merchant bank called Galaxy Digital Holdings. The problem, of course, is that he started this crypto effort, this crypto merchant banking effort, right as Bitcoin peaked and began its historic plunge. And the amazing thing about Mike Novogratz is that he is a man of conviction. You have to be if you're a trader. And he is still, even though Bitcoin, as Charlie Pellet told us moments ago, is trading at around 33.35, down from some 19,900 almost a year ago, uh, he's still all in. Why? That's Mike's story. Why? Because he believes fundamentally that there is promise to this technology. I would say there's more than just that. He believes that in the not-too-distant future, he believes three things. In the not-too-distant future, the blockchain, the underlying technology to cryptocurrencies, is going to have a transformative impact on finance and on industry that may eventually be as great as the impact that the Internet had on our lives, in our lifetimes. Right. He also believes that institutional investors will embrace crypto. He calls it the cavalry. The cavalry is coming next year. That the retail investors who bid Bitcoin up to almost $20,000 have been thoroughly flushed out. And the next participants are going to be institutions, the likes of endowments and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, real money investors who are intelligent. And the third thing that he believes is that Bitcoin is digital gold. He mm. describes it as being a legal pyramid scheme, just like gold is. It's one of the best quotes in this conversation that he had, he and I had. All the gold that's ever been mined in the world can fit into an Olympic-sized swimming pool. He says, should that swimming pool be worth $8 trillion? Of course not, but it is because we say it is. And Bitcoin is worth $3,330 because we say it is, not because it has any intrinsic value, just like gold has very little intrinsic value. Is it just a case, though, he's talking his book? I mean, has he made a ton of money on crypto, or has he lost a lot, or is Both. he even? Both. Both. He became a crypto billionaire and has since lost a ton of money. To be fair to Mike Novogratz and the business that he's building, they aren't down as much as the crypto market is. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is down some 85%. Galaxy's book, it has a trading book, is not down 85% because they trade it. They short it sometimes, they're long sometimes, they're selling sometimes, and sometimes they're hedged. Um, but they're down, and he beats himself up for that. He says, uh, candidly, that they should have made money all the way down. He knew it was going to be a bear market, but he reminded me, and this is the trader talking, it's fine if you've managed your way down 60%. 
but what if the market goes down another 60? Right. Then you're down 84. <laughs> and he said that second 60% leg down is where the pain really happens. Well, it's a an Great absolute must-read uh, Q&A. I, I mean, just there's line after line that you read from him. And, you know, Eric, you and I have seen at conferences, he is, I, I know there's an actual Bitcoin Jesus, but he's kind of a Bitcoin Jesus uh, in his own right, a crypto Jesus, in the sense that everybody uh, is listening to what he, he says. He's right? everything that comes through in the words that he says. He is that person. Yeah. That's how he talks. When right. I ask him about crypto and he says it was a drug and now we're at the methadone clinic that's how he thinks (laughs) it's a great read great interview and you can check out more uh, on the bloomberg and also at bloomberg.com eric schatzker eric editor at large right here at bloomberg news How great is that to describe kind of the market environment we're in? We're walking on a thin line because it is really hard day to day to know how the environment and the trade is going to play out. Because, uh, in fact, today we had US, uh, the U.S. stock rally here in the United States um, reversing course. So let's uh, get into uh, today's market trade and the three things that uh, our next guest sees as weighing heavily on the market. Kevin Miller is CEO and Portfolio Manager at Evaluator Funds, $625 million in assets under manager, based in Minneapolis, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. How cold is it in Minneapolis right now? It's colder than it is here. Uh, (laughs) It's probably... 10 above, I'm guessing, but <gasps> we, we adjust gracious. to it. That's why we have coats. I know. So. You guys You guys figure it out. Um, or have you adjusted to the market environment right now? I don't know if you can. You know, it's uh, the volatility. You, you, I guess what you have to do is you have to look at, you know, two elements of the market. One is fundamentals and the other is technicals. And from a fundamental perspective, you look at unemployment, you look at GDP, you look at uh, inflation, and all of them things seem to be relatively in line. You look at technicals, and from a technical perspective, if you look at the S&P, we've kind of touched the same lower level that we now, that we touched in October, and similar to what we touched in March. So I'm kind of optimistic always, and I I like to think that we're trying to form a bottom here, and uh, we get some of these uh, headline items off the headlines, and we can see some recovery. Well, and we're we're sitting here, Kevin, in our studio in New York City. We've got all these TV screens going, and we're seeing some headlines about you know, Prime Minister Theresa May from the UK heading over to Brussels for the next leg of these negotiations. Brexit, one of the things that you are clearly looking at with you know minute to minute, tick to tick, certainly day to day. How do you make sense of that from an investor's point of view? Because what we're seeing is currencies, stocks really moving on where we think momentum is here. Yeah, and what you have to do is, you know, how many times have we had a, a revamping of a trade agreement like we're seeing with China? Or how many times has there been a, a Brexit in our lifetime? So it's kind of hard to look back on past history and say, well, this is what transpired back then. This is what we can expect going forward. So we don't have that. So what you have to do But is, we've had financial crises. We've had the Greek crisis. We've had concerns about European banks. You know what I mean? Yeah, like we've, we, had, we've had crises. But, I mean, this is... Uh, the potential if if Britain leaves and then if Italy leaves, that could bring the whole European community you know could pull it apart um, but back to your your question with regard to what how do we handle that here 's what we don 't do is we don 't index that market okay so we don 't uh, approach the European economy the European market on a passive basis right because there 's still good companies over there there 's still good individual companies i mean 
people who enjoy a Nestle chocolate bar aren't going to quit buying Nestle chocolate because the European community is up in an uproar. So, I mean, you have to look at the fundamentals again in that regard and be more active with your management. So how active have you guys been in terms of picking up new opportunities, especially as some names have been beaten up? Yeah, we, we've become more active since February of this year. Uh, you know, when you go back to November of 16 to January of, of, of mm-hmm. 18, we had the market up 15 months in a row. And then we saw that pullback because, oh, no, the 10-year the started getting over 3%. And, you know, so then since then we've had a recovery into September, and, and now we're, we're going through the, the turmoil we're going through at this point in time. Um, but we will always have some of our assets invested passively, and we'll have some of them invested actively, and we've transitioned that allocation more into active management at this point in time. And we expect so that to, you can pick and choose. Yeah, and we expect to stay there probably until 2021. Um, we're expecting a year from now the S and P to get itself back up to over 3,100. Um, so that's you know that's that's a sizable gain from where we're at today. Yeah. But um, we we get we get this trade agreement resolved. I think we'll recover the losses we've seen since September and be on our way in in the right direction. So let's talk about a couple of names that you like. Carol and I love digging into, you know, some specific picks. And and one that jumps out at me because we've been talking about it a lot lately, Microsoft. You know, yeah. we've seen them uh, what a resurgent company this is at this point because probably if we were talking about Microsoft two, three, certainly five years ago, be like, okay, Microsoft, yeah, they're doing great, whatever. Yeah. Um, but really, a resurgence there. Yeah, it's a dinosaur that's been reborn, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in one way. The reason we like it is because they're transforming their, their office uh, software into 365, and we expect sometime next year they'll have about 70% of that transition accomplished. And then also their web-based services, we feel that that's going to become very competitive with Amazon. I believe it's their Azure uh, right. service. Mm-hmm. And so um, and we, Amazon is a good stock. It's very expensive. I mean, for most individual investors to be able to afford $1,500 or $1,600 you know, to buy one share, you could buy several shares of Microsoft, still get into that technology component. Um, Their I, cloud business is now a, a more than $32 billion revenue generating on an annual basis business. Um, that's They've grown that pretty yeah. quickly. And and with Amazon, my concern there, and not, not that we're, I know we're talking about Microsoft, but yeah. just from comparable perfe- uh, perspective, is that they're, they're getting into so many things. You know, they could be a jack of all trades and a master of none if they right. don't keep their eye on the ball. So that's kind of where we're trying to pull that apart. And Microsoft, it seems, has gotten focused on the cloud. <laughs> that's uh, right. To your point, I mean, certainly uh, Satya Nadella has made that uh, his mission. I would uh, just say that people have lost a lot of money betting against Amazon. I mean, the stock is up forty one percent this year. And and I, no, I hear what you're saying, and I've heard this argument a lot. But I'm just saying, just to yeah. play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, you know, people keep saying too many things, too many things are spending money. But you know, this this company has performed. So for my individual investors who want to get into something like an Amazon and hitchhike off that performance, we suggest like a Visa because you know you, you don't pay yeah. cash for yeah. for things you buy on Amazon it's you know interesting so, yeah interesting it's like buying so you, picks and shovels on the gold rush right well, that's like, right right exactly you don't care who where they're buying but they've got it th- these are the guys that are processing the payments they're riding along they're riding the wave with them yeah. you also like um, UPS which i think is interesting as well well you know you think about it <clears throat> Online um, online uh, ordering is not going away. Everyone's pushing their online sales services. You have lower fuel, fuel costs, and you have strong consumer sentiment. 
Well, those three things added together, if they can operate efficiently, uh, this should be a very strong strong stock for us in the in the near future. Morgan Stanley came out recently and they said uh, they see graver risks for UPS FedEx because of Amazon Air. We were talking, we talked about that when this came out. Uh, do they need to be worried about Amazon? And you know, they're kind of saying. We'll do it on our own. Well, I think, and they increasingly are, or doing more with the U.S. Postal Service. UPS has such a big moat because they are the worldwide leader. They have a very developed network, right? And so to penetrate that network, I'm not saying uh, someone can't ever be uh, taken over. I mean, look at Sears Roebuck, right? Um, so it can happen, but I'm just saying, in the perspective that most people would be investing and in holding this stock, I don't think it's a it's an issue at this point in time. Only about thirty seconds left. Do, does the U.S. get a trade deal done with China by the March 1st deadline? I would say 70% probability, yes. Wow. Uh, so we, you know, that's, that's all you can do now, right, is you can only invest in based on probabilities because <laughs> right. it's yeah. somewhat speculation. Yeah. Correct. And so you look at, okay, if it doesn't happen, how do you align your portfolio? If it does happen, how do you align? And we're at this time saying something positive will come down the, the, uh, through the decision-making process within the 90 days that will propel the market in the right direction. Kevin Miller, thank you so much. Nice to see you. Have a great holiday. Thank you very much. He is Chief Executive Officer, Portfolio Manager at Evaluator Fund, $625 million under asset, based in Minneapolis in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. This is Bloomberg. So Business Week is known, well, for a lot of things, but it's especially known for its closely followed business school rankings. In fact, Jason and I were at uh, Stanford Business School just last month as it was ranked number one among the U.S. MBA programs. The magazine now out with another list. It's the Global Rankings of Business Schools. And here to talk about it is Caleb Solomon, Senior Editor at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, in New York City. Nice to have you back with us. I mean, these are lists that are so closely followed. Tell us about the Global Rankings. And is it very similar in terms of the criteria for the, the list that's put together for U.S. MBA schools? Exact same criteria, except it's global. And this is our first global ranking of business schools. Um, in past years, uh, Bloomberg used to rank U.S. schools, which we did again this year, right. and it ranked international schools. And it called it an international ranking, which meant schools not based in the United States. Th- that didn't make any sense. That's not how the world works. That's not how students think. That's not how alumni think. So this year, for the first time, you know, INSEAD and you know, London Business School are on the same list as, as uh, Harvard, Stanford, and McGill. Right. But the U.S. The U.S. schools still have a pretty distinct advantage because a lot of this list looks like the one we talked about a month ago. You're exactly right. The top of the list, the top tier is dominated by U.S. schools. You know, Stanford comes out number one again, Wharton number two, Harvard number three. You have to go to number 10 before you find the first school that's not from the U.S., which is IMD out of uh, Switzerland. And it's interesting, too. Um, I love how you, you know, like, remind everybody about the kind of the facets that you look into when you're doing the rankings, what, who you're talking to and what you want to know. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, we, so we, um, we sur- mostly it's survey-based. We surveyed 26,699 students, alumni. I memorized that number. This is someone who is very involved, as you can tell. <laughs> exactly. We've been doing this a while. Students, alumni, and employers who recruit at business school campuses. And we use some standard metrics that all schools provide. So from that, and we also, and one of the key things we ask them is, what is absolutely most important to you about going to business school? What do you want most? 
And not surprisingly, what they want most is compensation. Yeah. They want to make more money. And so we have a compensation index, and we have three others that are pretty important. But compensation, far and away the most important thing in our ranking. And what we learned is graduates of U.S. schools make a lot more money than graduates of schools outside of the what U.S. What is that? What's the analysis there? I'm curious about that. Is it just name recognition or what? It's geography. So U.S. companies uh, pay more. And yeah, most students, yeah. while, while international students everywhere are an important component of business schools, most students, most graduates stay in the country where they went to school. So if you stayed in the U.S., whether you're starting in the U.S., you know, in the U.S. to begin with or coming from overseas, you stayed in the U.S. and you probably came out with much higher compensation. So when I ask you about going back to that criteria a little bit, you know, entrepreneurship was something we talked a lot about. It really helped Stanford uh, really differentiate itself. It felt like uh, in the rankings we talked about a while ago, same case here. As you looked globally, is entrepreneurship as important at some of the non-U.S. schools? It, it is. I mean, entrepreneurship is just now woven into the fabric of most business schools, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or work in a startup or work in a really large company. The principles of entrepreneurship are key. And what we found is we have an entrepreneurship index, and we found that three uh, of schools outside of the U.S. were in the top 10 in that, in, in that index, which were ESAD and IESE from uh, Spain and INSEAD from right. uh, France. Tell me about some, yeah, I'm curious about some of the other um, global business schools, MBA programs that made it onto the list. Because I do feel like they're not the names we talk about often, but I'm thinking our audience is certainly a global one and are probably interested to see who else made it. It, it is. And so, I mean, the biggest component outside the U.S. are the European schools. So the top schools from, from our list from Europe were IMD in Switzerland, London Business School, and INSEAD. Uh, we also focused on Canadian schools and uh -huh. Canadian applications, by the way, for schools in Canada are, are surging right now, particularly from the U.S. From US stu perspective, students living in the U.S. because they're looking uh, at a less expensive uh, education and a quality one. That's what I wanted to ask you. We know that these MBA programs can be pretty pricey. Uh, Caleb, what do we know about schools that whether it's somewhere over in Europe or, as you said, in Canada? I mean, what's, what's the cost difference? Uh, that's a really important question. So most most of the programs in Europe are one year, and most of the programs mm -hmm. in the U.S. are two-year programs. So, even if the even if the tuition is similar at some of the higher priced it's schools in Europe, half the price. It's half the <laughs> price. You're done faster. You're back in the workforce faster. And so, I mean, our ranking is meant to show. In a lot of different ways. Here's you, you, the prospective student, you look and you dive into our website and look at a variety of different factors and see what's important to you and make make a better decision. And, you know, one of the notable things, too, was, and we talked about this when the U.S. rankings came out, international applications down for a lot of the U.S. schools. And that's going to play through maybe not even immediately, but over the next couple of years, I do wonder if some of the top students end up staying in Europe or staying in Asia and staying other places, maybe these rankings start to shift over the next couple of years. They very well might if the, if the trend continues. I mean, the, the drop is huge. 53% drop in uh, schools in the U.S. reported drop in international applications. We talked about that with Stanford. And it, what's interesting is the implications, right? You think about, you know, the Google founders or whomever, you know, these people who go to school in the United States and then say, I'm going to start a company here in the United States. And some of these companies become behemoths, employing a lot of people, making a lot of money. 
money, uh, you know, there are implications. There are, there are definitely implications. All right, Great Caleb list. Solomon, uh, senior editor at Bloomberg, you've got more work to do because you've got to get ready for next year's list. But we also know we're going to be checking in with you throughout the year, zeroing in on a lot of the trends you're seeing as you put together not just the big rankings at the end of the year, but continue to dig into business schools. A great franchise. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday afternoon. Larry Pitkowski is co-founder, portfolio manager at Good Haven Capital Management, based in Milburn. New Jersey in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Nice to have you back with us. Nice to be back. Uh, you know, it's interesting uh, environment, um, not an easy one. It's kind of, you know, we could start off with some gains at the open and then it comes undone or vice versa. So let's just start off broadly and uh, with a macro perspective. Uh, what's going on? What's really driving the markets in your, in your view right now? You know, Carol, at Goodhaven, we've been saying for a number of years that we expected there to be more volatility in the market. We expected interest rates would not be at zero forever. And we think check, check. you should be prepared for that. Now, if you're a not a leveraged investor and you maintain some liquidity, volatility is your friend. So we think for value investors that are contrarians and it can be opportunistic, it is welcome to have a period of volatility where the market does not go straight up every day with the same four or five stocks leading the way. So it is a better environment for people like us at Good Haven and for some of our brethren. Well, a good time for value, finally, you might say. <laughs> it's interesting. We had uh, our colleague Dave Wilson, who does a chart uh, every day. He was talking about you know value has not been, shall we say, in favor uh, for quite some time. I got to think you've uh, had a rough go of it for that reason. How do you how do you explain sort of that? And do you feel like? We're coming out of it now. Oh, no, you can say it's been out of favor. It, you know, it won't hurt my feelings. I promise I'll come back. <laughs> Look, the, the, per, perhaps the most contrarian investment out there is an active value manager right. in general. Amazing. Now, now I, I think the important thing is that in investing in general, what has worked in the recent past very well is not normally what works going forward. Right. Unfortunately, most people invest out the rear view mirror, and the key is to look at the front. In 99-2000, which had been a very difficult couple of years for those of us that were around then uh, and stuck to our guns, it was then a wonderful decade where a lot of people went nowhere for a decade. So I think at the moment... Because everybody, just to remind people, back in those days, people were obsessed with dot-com and growth and all those things. And all were invested in the same couple of things. So I think going forward, it's going to matter a lot what you own, if you own things that are bargains, if you've done your homework. And it has not mattered as much at all over the last couple of years. In fact, a lot of portfolios that were cheap got cheaper. 
I think that is changing. So it has been a rough climate for us and many of our brethren. That comes with the territory. If you're not prepared for that kind of an environment every couple of years, you should pick a different style. But we only know one style. So we are looking forward to what I think has been a shift in the wind. All right. So where specifically would you shift some money to at this point? When Dave was doing, Dave Wilson was doing his chart of the day and he talked about maybe, uh, and this is based on a UBS uh, analysis, um, that the run-up that we've seen in some of the value names since they kind of bottomed out a little bit was energy and financials. Is that an area that you're interested among the value plays, or is there other names? We still have some exposure to energy. Energy was a very big win for us. Uh, our, our biggest holding uh, was WPX Energy, which had been a big success story. We right. had bought a lot of it in the single digits, and we sold a chunk of it at the highs of 20 bucks. So it's still a very important holding, and we love the management team. I think, you know, two companies today that strike us as uh, interesting. And matter of fact, we have a long list of things we think are interesting. But I wanted to talk about the airlines for a moment. Now, the, mm-hmm. the airline sector, there's a lot of noise. Uh, oil goes up. People get worried that they're not going to be able to keep up with the uh, increases in fuel costs. Oil goes down. Everybody worries they're going to increase capacity too much. But if you step back and you look at the industry domestically, you've gone from 10 competitors down to four. Those four control 70% of the market. They are all pretty well-run companies. Capacity is running, you know, how full are the planes in the low 80s to mid 80s on a percentage basis. American Airlines is our major holding there, though we own some Delta also. And we probably should have bought some United as well. So here's a company where management team is strong, shares have been weak. They are a little behind catching up to the fuel price increases of six months ago. This is American. American. Trading, according to Wall Street estimates, trading at around seven times earnings, but we think the earnings are actually understated. 35% this year. That is really been That's the real opportunity. Okay. Uh, American is uh, down year to date, a material amount. Delta's flat, and United's up a material amount. So I think American is the most interesting. And for all of the domestic airlines, I should say the big three, uh, they get about a third to more of their. Uh, revenues from their credit card affinity programs, which is a less cyclical business. So right. you have a better industry. How much do they get? It's, it hasn't been completely disclosed. We think it's in excess of a third. Wow. That's incredible. Right. It is incredible. Makes so, them a, you know, a, a pretty big financial firm. Correct. So wow. better, a better huh. business, good management team. They've bought a, back a lot of shares. Doug Parker does a wonderful job, gets paid only in stock. And we think that's a very, very cheap company in an industry that continues to not be completely appreciated how much it's changed from a decade ago. It's paid only in stock. Yes. Well, and speaking of CEOs, I know you like Rich Handler over at Jefferies as Very well. Much. Pretty dynamic guy on Wall Street. Long history. Tell us about Jefferies, going back to what uh, Carol was saying about financials maybe being uh, in favor once again. Uh, Rich is a great manager who has a lot of skin in the game. Jefferies is a financial services holding company. The biggest piece is Jefferies, the investment bank. Right. So let's talk about a couple of important things. One, we like in a financial company for the management team to have skin in the game. If you're in the risk business, we like for the people at the top to have risk exposed personally. Rich owns, I think, 15 million shares. So he's got skin in the game. I'd stock call that is, skin. Yeah. Stock is <laughs> 19 bucks. Uh, book value is 32 bucks. Tangible book value is about 25 bucks. They have bought back through October about 7% of the outstanding shares at around 24 bucks. So it's no big secret. Trading and deal making at the moment is a little bit slower. 
back in the old days to become a partner in a successful Wall Street firm, you know, you had to work like a dog and hope to get the tap on the shoulder and maybe you could buy in at book value. Yeah. Well, here you can buy it in 80% of tangible book value and 60% of stated book value in a well-run company with a great manager. And Rich has done a great job of not only growing the company and compounding value, but also of managing risk. You have to be a great risk manager in a financial Why company. is everybody running? We have a story on the Bloomberg that just says how it's lower for the eighth straight day on track for its longest losing streak since, uh, I don't know, in about six and a half years. Just got about 20 seconds here. Well, I think that's the opportunity. You know, there's but been, why is everybody running? Well, you look at the whole group. I mean, I think Morgan Stanley's down. Goldman's down. They have some specific things. I mean, it's no big secret. If you wait to buy a company like Jefferies for when they have a great trading quarter or great banking quarter or when the when there's no little cloud on the horizon you're going to pay up so if you feel you understand the company this is the opportunity good stuff always fun to talk names with you always Um, nice to be here thank you have a great holiday season you too uh great to have larry back with us larry pitkowski he's co-founder portfolio manager of good haven capital management they're based in Millburn, New Jersey, just outside New York City, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.